Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the second book of Samuel, chapters 9 through 11, and now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Young David would be shunned by the townspeople. In If Something Was Stolen or Lost, David was always accused as the natural culprit. In order, He ordered, in the word of the psalm, to repay what I have not stolen. So when David writes like this in the Psalms, the insults of those who insulted me have fallen on me, that I'm a byword to them. I'm the talk of everyone who sits at the city gate. The drunkards make up songs about me. My reproach and my shame and my dishonor, insults have broken my heart. I'm in despair. I'm a stranger, which the word in Hebrew is I'm a mamzer to my brothers, an alien. And a mamzer is a Hebrew euphemism for someone born in an illicit union in the person's lineage. He was thought to be a mamzer since Jesse had been separated from his wife at the time she conceived a child. No one else knew this is Jesse's child. I've become a stranger, a mamzer to my brethren, an alien, a foreigner to my mother's sons. They rejected David also because he was completely red. We're told that he was ruddy in complexion. He had red hair, very much unlike his father. David was given the lowly task of a shepherd because they hoped that a wild beast would come and kill him while he was performing his duties. And for this reason, David was sent to the pasture in the most dangerous areas full of lions and bears. And when he told Saul that he could kill Goliath, he said, Saul, King Saul, your servant has killed both lions and bears. I can take on this uncircumcised Philistine. They had David shepherding in dangerous areas, hoping that he'd get killed also reminiscent of Joseph and his brothers that hated him and wanted him dead. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 17, where David, before he killed Goliath, he comes to his older brothers in the field. And Eliab, the oldest brother, when he heard David, he was filled with anger against David. And he said, why have you come down? And and, and with whom have you left these few sheep you have in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down here to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So you see, David was hated. He was despised by his brothers and the townspeople. So Jesse did not have a Jesse tree, a lineage all by himself. Jesse had a wife. There was a woman who provided her ovum many times over for Jesse's family tree, and her name was Netzvet. Her name is never, ever mentioned in all the Hebrew scriptures. Her name was Netzvet Bat Adel, a woman who would take a stand. That's what her name means. Now, think a thousand years later after this. Righteous Joseph from the house of David of Jesse's lineage would have been aware of this oral tradition about his house. Joseph's wife has come home after three months at Obedidim, where David had brought the ark. And she comes home and she's showing. She's been staying with her kinswoman Elizabeth for three months. And Mary was showing signs of pregnancy, of which Joseph knew with 100% certainty that he was not the father. They had never had relations. An angel would let Joseph know the truth. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. Did Joseph think about King David's mother, Netzvet? Like Netzvet, Joseph remained silent in all the scriptures. He doesn't say one word. Would his own situation be similar? A wife that's pregnant. 
Joseph's son, Joseph's a son of David from the house of David. He would have remembered the oral tradition, the story of David and his mother Netzavit, and David's seemingly questionable conception while Netzavit was separated from Jesse, who's the father. But the scriptures had foretold it. Lo, how a rose air blooming, a spotless rose, a rose of Judah, of Jesse's lineage coming, as men of old had sung. Isaiah thus foretold it, the rose God had in mind. With Mary, we behold it, the virgin mother kind. Isaiah 7 said, Behold, a young virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Mary was separated from Joseph after their betrothal while Joseph went to prepare a place for them to live. One day an angel of the Lord came to Mary proclaiming the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So to the world's eyes, two questionable conceptions, 1,000 years apart, Nitzavit and baby David, and Mary and baby Jesus, son of David. The two humble Jewish women would keep God's secret a secret, God's gift a secret. Never named in the scriptures, Nedzavet, but Mary, all generations will know her name. All generations still call her blessed, 3,000 and some years later. Psalm 86, David wrote this about his mother, Nedzavet. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. David says his mother served the Lord. Many of David's character traits are instilled by his mother, Nitzvet, who he lived with. Remember how David protected his parents during the war. We're told that in 1 Samuel 22, David went and took his parents to the king of Moab because they had ties, right? Because of Ruth. Pray, let my father and my mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And David left his parents at a time of great war and danger with the king of Moab. Now, Jewish tradition also claims that David made a mistake by moving his parents and trusting the king of Moab because David's parents were eventually killed in Moab, which would explain why David aggressively destroyed Moab after his reign over all Israel was established. In Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We know everyone has original sin, yes. But that night, when Nitzvit conceived, righteous Jesse remained unaware of the switch. Children should never be conceived in deception. And David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Nitzvit told Jesse and the family what had happened after David was anointed king, almost 30 years later. It was the day of vindication for both she and her son David, who had been wrongly accused all those years before. Now, today we see in 2 Samuel 9 that David will show great kindness to Mephibosheth. Do you remember, we've met this kid before, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died at Hebron and his courage failed and Israel was dismayed and war was very eminent. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a, a son that was crippled in his feet. He was five years old. When the news about Saul and Jonathan dying had come from Jezreel and his nurse grabbed him up and ran and she was running fast and she fell and the child became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth, which means from the mouth of shame. Now, David is thinking back. He's the king of all Israel now, and he's thinking back, and he's remembering his friendship with Jonathan. And he says, is there still anyone left from the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant named Ziba. That's one of Saul's old servants. He's called to the king, and 
he says, is there anyone, is there anyone left that I could show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan? And the king said, well, yes, there's Meshibbethet. He lives far, 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 far away at Amiel de, de Labar. That's very, very, very far away. He's lame. He's of no threat to you, King David. He's Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. He's absolutely no threat to you. He lives far, 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 far away, and he's lame. But David says, call him to me. And Mephibosheth comes, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face and did him obeisance. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, behold, your servant is here. And David said, do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore all the land of Saul your fa- and your father, and you will eat at my table always. Now, David knew firsthand the pain of not eating at his father's own table when he was a child and ostracized from the family. He knew that pain, being ostracized also as a mamzer, a stranger, an alien to his own family. He has empathy for this son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. What is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? This kid's no threat. I'm a dead dog to you, David. I'm lame. I'm crippled. In the wounding of his childhood, David too was a dead dog. We all are. We all have childhood wounds. David called Ziba, Saul's servant, to him and said, all that belonged to Saul and all that belonged to his house, I have given to your master's son. This is sheer grace. Mephibosheth gets everything, all Saul's estate, because he was a son of the king, and he is showered with something undeserved. He's a dead dog. He's undeserving. He did not work for it. It's sheer gift. And he is being invited to dine forever at the table of the king. This is amazing grace, because you are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king, and you are showered with something undeserved as well. Like Mephibosheth, you were lame and crippled with original sin. You were a slumbering pup. Maybe not a dead dog, but a slumbering pup. But he revives you. And you have also been invited to dine forever at the table of the king. It happens right here at Mass. And when we are far, 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 far away, he wants again to invite us to be restored by sheer grace so we can once again sit at the king's table of sonship and daughterhood. And he does this through a priesthood in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, the son of David, in the line of Melchizedek, which David wrote in Psalm 110. And so Mephibosheth is invited to forever eat at the king's table. He shall always eat at my table. So we are all Mephibosheths. We eat from the king's table. Now, Mephibosheth went on to have Micah, and Micah will go on to have four sons. So he will carry on the lineage of King Saul's house through his grandsons, Jonathan's grandsons. And it tells us Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. And I like that little line they added. Now he was lame in both feet because he's still lame. Mephibosheth was still lame in both feet, but eating daily from the king's table, which reminded me that we too are lame sinners, redeemed by grace, but we still limp. We're still lame from our sin, from our fallen human nature. So we really need grace continually through that sacrament. Always lame, but still a way to be forgiven, to repent, and still always invited to partake at the king's table. Okay. And then in 2 Samuel 10, the king has died. The king of the Ammonites has died. And Hanan, his son, 
takes over. And David says, I'll deal, I'll deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nashash, because his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. But the princess of the Ammonites said, do you think David is sending comforters to you and honoring your father? No. David has sent servants to you because he's spying out our city. It's espionage. He wants to throw us over. So Hanan took David's servants. He shaved off half the beard of each one. Now, shaving for a Jewish man, they have beards, long beards. But when someone died, they would shave the beard as a sign of mourning. So this king, Hanan, shaving half their beard, he's saying, you are giving a half-hearted effort at mourning. I don't believe you're mourning for my father. You're spying on us. So he shaves half their beards, and then he also cuts off half their garments at the middle at their hips and sends them away. Well, this is a mocked humiliation, what they would do to prisoners of war, and they're sent back to Jericho naked. Very humiliating. And when David heard of it, the men were greatly, greatly ashamed and humiliated. And when David heard of it, David took matters into his own hands. The Ammonites saw that they had become odious to David. David's mad. The Ammonites hire a bunch of soldiers from mostly from Syria, all different areas, 20,000, 1,000, 12,000. They're getting a big army together. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And David is going to himself join in that battle. That's important. David will join in that battle in verse 17. He, King David, gathered all of Israel together. They crossed the Jordan. They came to Halam. The Syrians were arrayed against David, and David fought with them. And David slew the Syrians and the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. So King David was in active battle with his men, and David defeated them. And they made peace with Israel and became subject to them, which means they would pay tribute, pay taxes to them. Now, in 2 Samuel 11, it's the time when kings go forth to battle. And what this means is after the torrential rains, the farmers can join in the battle after the rains, before the harvest, before the beginning of the harvest, farmers can join the militia of the king and the king goes out and fights with his army. So this is the time when kings go forth in battle, but look at the last sentence, but David remained at Jerusalem. Ding, 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 ding. That should make us perk up because David's supposed to go out. This is the time when kings go. He had just gone in, in that other battle, done fabulous. David's supposed to go out with his men. At the time when kings go forth to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. That's a giant, giant red flag. From Eden to Zion, from Adam to David. David had just brought that Ark of the Covenant into God's new creation, Jerusalem, last week, remember? David is a new type of a new Adam. It's a new creation. It's not Eden, but it's Jerusalem now, the sanctuary of the Lord, the true presence of the Lord, the Ark of the Lord resides there. And it happened one, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. All the other men are out fighting. He's supposed to be out fighting with them, and he's home taking a nap. David arose from his couch, and he was walking upon the roof of the king's house. Now, Jerusalem is the highest city in Israel, topographically. His, the king's palace is at the very top of the hill, so he can survey everything. He's at the top of the world, looking down on the new creation. I'm on the top of the world, looking down on creation. And what does he see? That's right. David is a new Adam. He has a new creation. And what's the original sin of the original Adam? That you can be your own God. You can be your own God. Little g. David is a new Adam. 
Jerusalem is a new Eden and Bathsheba is a new Eve. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and free from any shame or any sin. David wants to be his own God. King David is on the top of the world looking down on his kingdom and his subjects, seeing all that is his in his own kingdom, his own new creation. He's done it all. He's made it. He's king over all. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house when he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very, very beautiful. Scholars say that David is about middle-aged now, middle-aged man. What happens sometimes to middle-aged men and middle-aged women? We have a midlife crisis. I've got everything. I've got everything. I'm still not happy. I've gotten it all on my own doing. And I'm not content. I'm my own God. I don't need anybody else. My best years are behind me. It's called the Bathsheba Syndrome. I'm not kidding. It's a real thing. You can Google it. The Bathsheba Syndrome. It's the ethical failure of successful leaders. It's been happening since the beginning of time. Just as Eve was naked in the garden, clothed in original holiness, nakedness before the fall, fallen David saw from the highest vantage point, like God, looking down a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Well, after all, the woman is the climax of all God's creation. Of course, we're beautiful, right, ladies? He saved the best for last. David sees and David wants. And St. John tells us in 1 John 2, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And David falls into the threefold temptation. David sees, David lusts, and David wants. And watch the verbs in this whole passage. Think of another Old Testament story with the exact same principles, only a little different. It's the story of Naboth's vineyard. In 1 Kings 21, King Ahab was the seventh king of Israel, so it's after David, son of Omri. But Ahab was married to the Venetian princess, Queen Jezebel. And Naboth has several palaces, but one of his palaces is in the Jezreel Valley, and there's a vineyard adjacent to his palace, and he wants the vineyard. But the vineyard belongs to somebody else. It belongs to Naboth. It's adjacent to Ahab's palace just one of his palaces. How much do you want for this? The king asked Naboth. And Naboth said, well, it's not for sale. I mean, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. I mean, this is my piece of the promised land. I could never, ever, ever, ever sell this for any price. It's priceless. And and the king Ahab was so vexed and so sullen, and he went back to the castle and he pouted and pouted and pouted. He laid on his bed. He turned away his face and he refused to eat food. Jezebel comes in and says, why is your spirit so vexed that you will eat no food? Do you not govern Israel, my love? I will get the vineyard of Naboth. And she sends a letter with the king's seal, and she sets up a false accusation saying that Naboth has cursed God and has cursed the king. And they take Naboth out and stone him to death. Naboth cursed the king. It's a false charge. And she has other men go and kill him because the king would like that piece of land. It's the same principle. Naboth gets stoned dead. So these have similar principles. David sees, David lusts, David wants, David gets. King Ahab sees, he lusts, he wants, he gets. An innocent man will be killed because the king of Israel wanted something that legally belonged to someone else. King Ahab has an innocent man killed over a legal deed that belongs to someone else, but it pleased the king, but it displeased the one true king. Same with David. 
King David of Israel wanted another man's wife, and he would have an innocent man killed to get what pleased him. After all, the king should have whatever the king wants in his kingdom. God made Adam the king of all creation. Because you remember, only King Adam had the kingly privilege of assigning names to his subjects. He was the king. Eve was only assigned a name by Adam after the fall. Because before the fall, they were on equal footing. Do you remember? And before the fall, they were equals, man and woman, drawn from man. Maybe she even the climax of creation. They were both naked and not ashamed. And only after King Man eats the fruit of the forbidden tree of knowledge is he named Adam by God. Now God is the king. God names Adam. And given the authority to name his wife, because now they were no longer on equal footing, her desire would be for her husband, but he would what? Rule over her. Adam's the king now. Now they know that they're naked. And immediately they find leaves to cover their nakedness. This is so important. To cover one's nakedness. Fallen humans will now need to cover their nakedness. The new creation of Noah, we talk about this a lot, that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness. Whenever you uncover nakedness after the fall, that's going to be a sin. To uncover one's nakedness. Leviticus 18 and 20 discuss disordered sexual relations. They condemn all sorts of different ways of uncovering nakedness. And I'm not going to read through them all, but I just want you to look. You can't uncover nakedness. You can't uncover nakedness of your son's daughter. You can't uncover your father's wife. You can't uncover the nakedness. 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 And everyone skips over Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. But the moral of the story is that fallen humans now should keep their nakedness covered. Adam and Eve immediately use lease to cover their nakedness. With one exception. With one exception. Except when nakedness is ordered to God, then you may uncover it. And when is that? In the marital embrace. Nakedness is ordered to God in a covenantal marriage with God because it images the perfect holy self-gift and self-reception of the Holy Trinity that is found only in the primordial marital embrace. Do you see? That was a huge light bulb for me, seeing that in a different way. Only in covenantal marriage with one another and with God could man and woman uncover their nakedness where it could be if God chose to bless them with new life, which is God's greatest blessing, which we know from Obed-Edom. When God wants to bless, he gives life. Now Adam knew his wife after the fall, and she conceived, and she bore Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Because God has allowed her to be a co-creator with him, and Adam to be a co-creator with God. What a gift that was in a covenantal marriage with one another and with God, man and woman could uncover their nakedness, and it might be blessed by God with new life, and they could be co-creators with God. Biggest blessing. Marriage between man and woman became the primordial sacrament. And Adam was not only the king to name all things, including his wife now, but he was also made a priest. He learned how to offer sacrificial animal blood to God in atonement, at one for their sin. Under Adam's kingship, he learned how to guard his garden like he was supposed to. The couple learned how to pray to God. And Adam, the priest king, would offer blood sacrifice to God for the atonement of their sin. And as a priest king, Adam would teach his sons how to pray and how to offer as God had taught Adam. And Cain and Abel would need to carry on the king-priest traditions now that death had entered the world because one day their father would die. And Adam offered animal blood sacrifice with a priestly prayerful heart as Adam had taught him. But Cain's countenance dropped at his sacrifice of fruits and vegetables from the cursed earth that was not accepted by God for atonement. And then envy, that same envy that Wisdom 2 talks about, 
through the devil's envy, death entered the world. That same envy present in fallen Cain will rear its ugly head as Cain murders his innocent brother and Abel's innocent blood cries out from the cursed earth to God for justice. God marks Cain's forehead. God sends Cain east of Eden and Abel is dead. So Adam's going to teach the next son, Seth, to be a priest king and how to make proper blood atonement to God. So going back now to David, a type of new Adam, David sent and inquired about the woman. Oh, she doesn't have a name. The woman. And when we hear the woman, that hails us right back to Genesis. The woman, Eve's name, the woman, before original nakedness was covered up by sin. David sent and inquired about the woman. And they said, oh, is that not Bathsheba? Oh, she has a name, Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the wife, the wife of one of your greatest soldiers who's out battling for you right now, King, while you're taking a nap on the couch. And David sent messengers and took her. See that verb? David took her because he's the king. And she came to him and he lay with her. David sent, David took, and David lay. And David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And that's the line right in the scripture. She was purifying herself from her uncleanness and all the male commentators go around it. But we have to look at it. It's in Leviticus 15. And when a woman has a discharge of blood, which is her regular discharge from her body, she shall be in her impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And I'm not going to read all of this to you, but anything, whoever touches anything, anything upon which she sits. You got to wash your clothes. You got to bathe yourself. Anything. She'll be unclean from the evening. If he lies with her, her impurity is going to be on him and he'll be unclean for seven days. Uh, Okay. Got it. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself another seven days. And and then she, after that, she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, guess what she has to do, ladies? She has to take two turtle doves and two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the meeting and offer sacrifice for her uncleanness. So you don't just have to buy pads and tampons. You got to have birds and turtle doves and pigeons. I know you're laughing, but this is so important. You'll see. Because on the eighth day, the woman's body does what? It has a resurrection. All the uncleanness, all the death, all that, all the uncleanness is shed. And guess what? She's able to bear new life again. And that's really important. And the priest shall offer sin offering and burn offering and make atonement for her because she was unclean. But then you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. That's important. My tabernacle that is in their midst. David had just bought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, remember? Did Eve ever menstruate before the fall? No, no. If we are to interpret the Garden of Eden as the archetypal sanctuary, the tabernacle of the Lord, the true presence of God, This helps us better understand the state of Adam and Eve before and after the fall. That was part two of the second book of Samuel, chapters 9 through 11, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.